Let's just pray. Okay, let's pray. Father, help us as we study your word. Help us as we study your word this morning to, uh, to learn all that we need to grow to become mature followers of Jesus Christ and, uh, and uh, make us hopeful and happy because of what you've done for us through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> There's a new, um, and it seems like, uh, to me, an intense interest in ancestry today, right? Uh, especially with the advent of internet and search searches, you can sit in your home and find out all about yourself and uh, your heritage. Leah's grandma, great, our kid's great-grandma, uh, is 94 years old and is big into that, wrote a big book about her whole history and all her family. And, but she had to travel like all over the world to get that information. Scotland and Utah and finding out all about her ancestral heritage. And now with the advent of DNA, you can find out your genetic makeup, you can find out your 50% Cherokee Indian or whatever it is. And uh, there's TV programs on PBS and others that uh, take a celebrity and track them through uh, all of their history, and there was a really funny one once where uh, the girl found out she was related to William Brewster on the, on the, on the Mayflower, and she didn't even know who that was. You know, that's these celebrities for you, right? The guy is sitting next to her by the table, like, waiting for her to, like, have her mouth open that she's related to this famous person from the Mayflower, and she didn't even get it. Oh, they were religious fanatics? Yeah. No clue. There's this new commercial where this lady holds up the, a painting of George Washington and says that DNA has revealed to her that she's related to him. I mean, it's really a fascinating thing, isn't it? And sometimes it's not so pleasant. Maybe you find out you're related to slave owners or Nazis or the KKK as in your background, right? Connections, though, are important to us. We brag on them or we hide them. And somehow imagine if you did this discovery tonight, you got a little bit interested and you went to Ancestry.com and found out you're related to the queen, and next thing you know, you're invited to Prince Harry's wedding this summer, and you're on the guest list, and you're visiting with these very famous people and staying in the palace. Even fairy tales have uh, emphasized this connection from time to time, most notably Cinderella, the one who cleaned the fireplace and was invited by the prince to be uh, related to the king. The point of all of me of saying this here as we begin is, those of us who have entered into a relationship with Jesus are related to a king. Now, why doesn't that move you? Why does nobody say amen to that? What's, what's the matter with me? What, I mean, we're related to a king. It's like if you were related to Abraham Lincoln, you'd be spouting it off to everybody, sharing how great this was. For some reason, we are unmoved by the fact that though we were once rebels to his authority, he has invited us to join his family. We discussed that when we talked about the privilege that it was a few weeks ago, back in Luke 7, verse 28, that the person who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the, the greatest born among women because of the high privilege that we have to be connected to Jesus in a personal way. So this morning, you come to Luke 8, and Jesus moves on from his meeting with the Pharisee and there's just a kind of a synopsis of his ministry in verses 1 to 3, including people who are connected to him as a result of their faith and repentance. 
And I want to look into that a little bit this morning, and, and I, again, I hope, encourage you. We're told in verse 1 that afterward, soon afterward, after this meeting that Jesus had with the Pharisee in his home, that Jesus goes through villages and cities proclaiming and bringing the good news. Isn't that interesting? Proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. So what Jesus' ministry is marked by is a teaching and preaching ministry. Proclaiming and bringing are two different words. Proclaiming is the idea of a herald who would come into town and kind of say, hear ye, hear ye, I have a public announcement to make. There's a statement that we're going to announce publicly where bringing is the word for evangelism. So what Jesus is doing as he goes from town to town is making a public announcement about the good news of the kingdom, whatever that is. So what is it exactly that Jesus is proclaiming when he comes into these towns and proclaims the kingdom of God? What is he saying? What does this mean? In Matthew 19, Jesus states in conjunction with the rich young ruler that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he uses that phrase again, and this phrase is common throughout the Gospels, this phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. And in conjunction with that story about the rich young ruler, the disciples after that, after the rich young ruler goes away and Jesus makes that statement about the kingdom of God, the disciples say, well then who can be saved? So here's the connection. Here's the first connection for us is whatever the kingdom of God is, it's talking about salvation. The disciples understood that. So in a sense, when Jesus is going from town to town, he's proclaiming the good news of salvation. But I think we can get even more specific than that. We live in a world today uh, that has instant communication. Uh, we, can, we can instantly connect with anyone in the world that we want. In a matter of seconds, we could get Joel and Sarah on the screen talking to us from Burma. Right? We have very quick transportation. I saw a thing on Twitter this week of a missionary put up that it was a map of the world and it said travel distance from London in like the 1800s. Like everything in Europe was like a week and then it was like months to get to America from London, right? You could be in London tomorrow morning, right? Um, we have instant information. We can get anything we want about any matter immediately. The engine light goes on in your car. You can Google it and find out who, who was the sixth president of the... You, you find out all of this information. And I'm thankful for these things because when Allie goes to Guam in August, we can have instant communication with her. It, it, so we're thankful for all these things. But even with these wonderful things, it hasn't made the ultimate questions of life go away. It hasn't made people stop despairing. They, they, in fact, these things actually make it easier for wickedness to thrive. It's not made any of our lifespans uh, longer. Uh, we haven't necessarily become more intelligent about how to prolong our life. It is still a breath that can't even be measured. It's here and it's gone. One time we were in a camp setting with a, with a group of teens and the Maybe you've heard this illustration before. The man got up to speak and he held up a yardstick, um, which is 36 inches long, and he imagined that each of those inches was two years of your life because the Bible pretty much teaches that's what you get, right? 72 years. And so he started breaking off parts of the ruler, right? Okay, so most of the kids were 16 or whatever, so I don't remember how, I don't know how much that would be, but he 
he, he broke off a, a good portion of the yardstick. So imagine those of you who are in here and you're, and you're over 36 years old, that, that yardstick is half. You're 50, it's getting smaller, right? That's, that's the measure of our life. Snap and it's gone. So where do we find our hope in a world like that? And that's, I think, in a sense, what Jesus is proclaiming. Even though there are these things, the evil of this life and the brevity of this life, right? There, Jesus is coming and proclaiming that there is another kingdom that you can be a part of. So we have this concept in the Bible of the kingdom of God and Jesus proclaiming and bringing that good news wherever it was that he went. That there is a God who is living and powerful, who made us, who loved us, who died for us, and longs to reign over us so that no matter how bad this life is, or even when considering our own mortality, we know that God is on control, in control, sitting on His throne, and He reigns. So what is the kingdom of God? What is it that He's proclaiming? I'm going to say four quick things and then get into our message. First of all, the kingdom of God is a present spiritual reality. A present spiritual reality. Romans 14, 17 mentions this, saying the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not a necessarily a physical reality. It is a present spiritual reality. Secondly, the kingdom of God is a future inheritance that God's people will receive when Christ comes, saying in Matthew 25, verse 34, that the king will say unto those on his right hand, Come, blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom for you that has been prepared since the foundation of the world. There is a present spiritual reality that Christ is inviting the people who he speaks to to be in, involved in. And even though you're enjoying that spiritual reality now, there is a future inheritance that will be received. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is a present spiritual realm that followers of Jesus enter. Colossians 1.13 says, I'm going to say all these things and then try to make sense for you. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His life. You enter this realm. And then fourthly, the kingdom of God is a future physical realm that Christ's followers will enter. We're studying that in, in Sunday school, 2 Peter 1.11. An entrance will be supplied to you, a rich welcome will be supplied to you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So part of the problem is when we think of kingdom, this modern language that we use, we typically think of a land with borders, a territory that is marked off, right? Um, and, and, and we think of a physical place where a person rules over that physical place. And once you are outside of that kingdom, then you're outside of the realm of that particular ruler. The kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming is not necessarily a territory with borders. It is referring to the rule of someone, not the area or land controlled. So let me make this summary statement about what Jesus is proclaiming here. The kingdom of God is a reign or rule as well as a realm where that reign and rule is experienced. Okay? The kingdom of God is a reign or rule, 
course, God is the ruler, but it also is the realm in which that reign is experienced. Because what good is it to be a king without a realm? Right? What good is a reign without a realm? We are now going to promote you to king. Okay, where's my realm? Well, you don't have one yet. But you're the ruler of it. But there isn't a realm, right? So the kingdom of God includes two things. All that I've said, I'm trying to now... You say, well, Pastor, you're up here and I'm not getting it. So let me come down here. And here, here's what it is. The kingdom of God is that, is that God is a ruler... And he has a realm where he rules. And so Jesus is going about proclaiming that kingdom. He's proclaiming that rule. He's proclaiming that realm. He's inviting people to become a part of it. In order, so, so when you, and, and again, the kingdom of God is equal in Matthew 19 to salvation. So in order to enter into that kingdom, you must come the way that he demands. Uh, sometimes the realm is seen as present, that he, he rules over our lives. And sometimes the realm is seen as future, the actual physical kingdom of God that we will enter. Okay? So God rules in two places. He rules spiritually in the hearts of people who have received him, and he rules physically in that place, that dimension called heaven that we will enter upon our death if we have first entered into his kingdom in this life. So let me make some initial conclusions before I actually look at Luke 8, 1-3. So here's we have this information. Jesus going from village to village, evangelizing people with his message of the kingdom of God. God wants to be your ruler. He wants to reign over you. And there's a realm, there's a place in which he does that. This is divinely appropriated because John 3, 3 states that you cannot see the kingdom of God Unless you are born again. Unless you are regenerated. Born from above. But also, there are action steps that you must take because you must repent of your own sin to enter that kingdom because, Matthew 5.1, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who admit their spiritual bankruptcy, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Okay? So in order to enter the kingdom of God, in order to enter this rule, God must regenerate you so that you can exercise that repentance and faith that is necessary to receive God's kingdom and to enter into that present spiritual reality. Okay, All of you who have received Christ as, as Savior because you've been regenerated by God, you've repented of your sin and received by faith this message of the gospel, God is your king and he rules in your heart. And one day you will be promoted to this promised future physical realm, a place in God's eternal kingdom. Now with all that in mind, come back to Luke 8 with me and let me make three quick thoughts about it, okay? This is the message that Christ is proclaiming. Now I say Luke 8, but can you step back with your fingers back to Luke 4 for just a second? Let me show you one other thing. Okay? I think that's pretty insane what God has done, don't you? Because uh, we didn't want to be a part of this kingdom. We weren't seeking to be part of this kingdom. We were living in the kingdom of darkness, rebels to God. 
basically telling God to keep his distance and stay away because we hated him. We were at enmity with him. And the king, in love, we're going to mention this passage maybe if we have time, sends his son to make this proclamation to come to earth to make this public announcement and evangelize us and say, God wants to be your king still. There's still a chance for you. It's not hopeless. You're not, you're not, going, to be, uh, you're not going to be eliminated from the kingdom. There still is a chance for entrance. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> I think it is. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus mentions this as the purpose of his ministry. Look at that with me, please. It says, in verse 42, this is after a very... Uh, somewhat of a revival response by the people. But when it was day after he had healed all these people, he departed and went to a desolate place and the people were seeking him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But here's Jesus' response. I must of the kingdom of God to others, to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Point number one in our lesson today, okay, is this. Just two words, a divine imperative, a divine imperative. I want you to note this, okay? Jesus' purpose, he he was sent to make this proclamation. This was his message. This, This was his purpose in coming so that he leaves a group of people who are responding to him because he says, no, I was sent for the purpose of proclaiming this message to others as well. He was mission. This very small word, must, in verse 43, is a must of divine necessity. Uh, Luke uses that word a lot. Listen to some of the places where he also uses, just the simple Greek word, day, D-E-I, that he, he must, uh, he must, Luke 2, 49, be about his father's business. Right? He's, he's constantly driven by this mission. Luke 9.22 says, the Son of Man must suffer. It is a divine imperative. Luke 22.37, the Scripture must be fulfilled that the Son will be numbered with the transgressors. Luke 24.7, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus' mission was not a random series of actions, but a divine imperative, a purposeful mission where He was sent from the eternal plan and purpose of God, the gospel of the kingdom must be shared with people. The purpose and mission of Jesus was never in doubt. He was divinely driven to share this message because he said, I must do everything that pleases the Father. I have only come, John tells us, in John 6, verse 38, to do the will of the one who sent me. So grasp this. The will of God who sent Jesus was to proclaim there is a chance for you to enter the kingdom. Okay. What if there wasn't that chance? Why doesn't that blow you away? Why aren't you, why aren't you left in total despair because, because God, God actually made it possible for you to hear this message and then no chance you'd ever receive it because you're spiritually dead and blind. And so he allows you the, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit so that you can receive it. I mean, praise God for that. This is the divine will of the Father. Jesus, you don't go down there and you're not just exploring and looking around at the cool stuff we made. You are to share this message that I, the King, reign. 
and want subjects to rule over anyone who will repent and receive me. This resides deep in the loving heart of the Father to share this message, which leads us to the second thing. It's not just a divine imperative. There is a divine invitation. In fact, the divine imperative is to share the divine invitation. You are welcome to come to the kingdom if you want. We're coming into wedding invitation season. It's a wonderful season for us, isn't it, men? Where you wait for those cards to come, the save the date cards, and you look forward to those nice summer Sundays or Saturdays in June and July that you want nothing better than to put a suit on and go to a wedding of somebody you really don't even know. I like going to weddings uh, when I, if something disastrous happens at them. Um, I heard about one where the lady asked for this First John passage on love to be read at her wedding and the pastor mistakenly read about the Antichrist. I thought that was good. Or fainting and those type of things. Sometimes I get bored. I watch wedding faint videos. Those are classics, right? But nobody, you know, you get this invitation and it's like, uh, sometimes I hide them. Like if it's a distant cousin or a friend that we don't know, like I go out to the mailbox, rip it up, throw it in the, let Maisie chew it up or whatever. So I don't want to go to these weddings. And that is the response of people in Matthew 22. We don't have to turn there, but you can look at it later. But you know this parable. When the king sends out this invitation, right? And says, people come to the wedding of my son. And in Matthew 22, verse 3, might just jot down and look later, it says that the people who received this invitation were not willing to come. Why is the invitation of the good news of the kingdom not seen for the high privilege that it is? It's not that they couldn't come. It's that they wouldn't come. You look at the excuses of a similar parable in Luke 14. And they're not urgent needs, right? I bought a field. I bought some oxen I need to test out. I just got married myself. I can't come to another wedding. These are just excuses where they don't seem to care. And after a second invitation in Matthew 22, verse 5, even though the king has patience and long-suffering with the people who are not willing to come, he tries again, and it says they make light of it. The passage tells us they, they have no concern, they neglect it. They had no respect for the king and thought they could deny his invitation without consequence. But one day, all those who reject the invitations of this loving king will pay the eternal price for that. Isn't it great to have been invited? It's thrilling. By the eternal king. 1 Timothy 6.16 calls him the immortal king who sits enthroned and invites us scum to be a part of that kingdom. Many people are like the celebrity who was unimpressed by William Brewster and sh- shrug it off. Like, and don't want anything to do with that king. They're totally unimpressed by this invitation. Jesus going from town to town in Luke 8, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the gospel, have some who respond, but many who reject, make light of it, deny the invitation, will not come. But for those of us who have had the scales removed and the blinders lifted and the heart enlightened and the soul regenerated, have no excuse except to exclaim, praise God for this divine invitation. Last thing. There's a divine imperative to share the divine invitation which has divine impact. Those who receive this invitation are changed by it. I want to now look at Luke 8 and examine some of these people. Okay. 
There are some who have received this invitation and joined themselves to this itinerant rabbi, and what's unusual is that they're all women who are mentioned. The 12 are mentioned, of course, but then three specific women are mentioned, and that would be highly unusual. But it comes off the heels of Luke 7, where the sinful woman of Luke 7 responds to the gospel of Jesus and actually comes back and worships him and is so thankful for all of the forgiveness that has been granted to them. Let's look at the three women that are mentioned in the passage, okay? It says Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and then Susanna. Of those three, we're most familiar, of course, with Mary Magdalene, but Joanna and Susanna are virtually unknown to us. We'll mention a little bit about them. Mary Magdalene is simply named that because she probably came from a region or a a village or area in Galilee known as Magdala. And so she became Mary called Mary of Magdalene. Uh, she is mentioned more in the Gospels than any other woman with the exception of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, she is mentioned here as well as in Mark 16, I believe it's verse 9, as being a woman who had been healed of seven demons. For the rest of her life, she becomes devoted to Christ, a supporter of his ministry. If you look down in verse 3, it even mentions her as being one who provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their means. I mean, who would support these guys as they went about traveling and preaching from village to village? Mary was one of them. Mary is seen later at the cross and seen in the garden tomb uh, where she is the first to encounter Jesus. Remember that image of her at the garden tomb saying, uh, I don't know where they've laid my Lord. Um, And Jesus meets her and commissions her to share the gospel to go share with the disciples that she's seen him. Uh, Mary was not one who received the blessings of Christ and then neglected the joy of serving him. She was completely transformed. She had been earlier dominated by seven demons. Imagine, through, I mean, throughout that, demons were, were also very well connected with uh, also the physical aspects too. Remember, certain places demons would take a person and throw them into the fire or cause them to cut themselves or... You know, be totally un, uh, uncooperative with anyone else. And so here it says that Mary is healed from seven demons. There's another place in Scripture where it says uh, the demons come and they invite seven of their demon friends to come in. And, and, and she has been totally delivered from that. And her love to Christ due to His forgiveness, the impact that, the, that this invitation had on her is evident so that all of the men who followed Jesus were gone from the cross. And yet Mary and some of the women are at the cross and then even at the tomb and then they're the ones in complete despair. She is the one in complete despair when she realizes that Jesus is gone. Mary totally dedicated herself to Jesus and his cause. And here is what must happen to people who are regenerated and enter the kingdom. They commit themselves to Christ. It proves their commitment to him. She mentioned here in the early Galilean ministry and was still with Jesus at the crucifixion. The other people mentioned just briefly, Joanna. Uh, Joanna is mentioned as the wife of Cuzza, that might not be the right way to say it, who is most likely a manager of Herod's household. Some believe that this word means that he's kind of the overseer of Herod's entire estate. It's the Herod uh, who actually imprisoned and executed John, who Cuzza was that Herod's manager. So the gospel of Jesus penetrated all kinds of people. Think about this. Um, as you think about Luke 7 and Luke 8, think about the different people who are impacted by this invitation. There is no limit to the, to the bounds of the gospel. Okay? 
when you think about the 12, and we did a series this summer on the 12, and all the, the varying nature, you have a tax collector, you have a fisherman, you have a zealot, right? You have intellectuals, you have, uh, you, you have uh, country people. You have this sinful woman, this, most likely this prostitute of Luke 7 who responds to the gospel. You have Mary who was inhabited by demons. You have then this woman of high esteem who lives in Herod's palace with her husband, the manager of Herod's estate. And the gospel knows no bounds. Do you know that? The gospel knows no bounds. The gospel of the kingdom is an invitation, is a divine invitation to anyone who would receive. We understand in God's sovereignty he's going to regenerate those who he has elected, but the invitation is in the public square for anyone who wants to respond. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, man or woman. The only people who are rejected are the self-righteous Pharisee people who say, I don't need the gospel of the kingdom. Joanna did, and her commitment to the Lord is seen. She's mentioned in another passage as well. In Luke 24, verse 10, she's mentioned as being one of the women who came and supported. Susanna, this is the only place she's mentioned, and she represents to us the unknown. Well, it says Susanna, and then it says, uh, and many others. Susanna and many others. Susanna and these many others represent the unknown millions, billions maybe, known only by name, or not even known by name to us, that represent people who have been eternally loved by Christ and divinely invited to join the kingdom. So someday we will meet Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others, and what we'll do is not congratulate ourselves but we'll go to each other and praise the king who invited us that this impact on our lives completely and totally changed our eternal destiny, but also our decisions and choices in this life. Let me conclude by saying this. What we learn about Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and these others, the impact of the gospel of the kingdom, here's three quick things. Okay, First, or ABC, or one, two, three, or whatever. First, we are completely liberated from our spiritual bondage. This is the impact of the gospel of the kingdom. Completely liberated from our spiritual bondage. Colossians 1, you are translated. You are taken from one kingdom to another. Your father was Satan. Your father now is God. Your destiny was hell. Your destiny now is heaven, the eternal kingdom. You once were in bondage to sin. Now you're free from that. In, in, in debt, and, and, and under the penalty and wrath of God, now you are forgiven. I mean, these are monumental shifts that have happened. The impact is untold upon us. Why does it not move us? We've been completely released from spiritual bondage. Secondly, the impact is there is a commitment to follow and support the ministry of Christ, which is what Mary, Joanna, and Susanna did. It must have been that Mary... Uh, Joanna and Susanna were wealthy, at least wealthy enough to support 12 hungry men traveling around, these itinerant preachers. Most likely Joanna, of course, was wealthy because she lived in Herod's household. And they were committed to follow and support the ministry until the very end, right? Luke 24.10 is, is a verse that I mentioned earlier where these, these women are mentioned again as being um, uh, there at the cross and and. Here it says, uh, at the resurrection, it was Mary Magdalene. This, these are people who return and share the resurrection news. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, she mentioned again, and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. These women were impacted by the gospel. 
They were completely liberated from spiritual bondage. They were committed to follow and support the ministry. And then they were commissioned to share the gospel, to share this message of the kingdom of God with others as we now are. I hope that you are thankful that in the heart of God from all of eternity, he had this imperative mission for his son to come and share this invitation to the kingdom of God, which has greatly impacted each one of us. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are grateful today for the love of Jesus, which constrains us, for we know if Christ died, we should now live for him. And I thank you, Father, for opening my eyes to the gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God, and I'm glad to be your subject. I'm glad to be in your eternal kingdom with you reigning over my life. And I'm sorry for the times that I've rebelled against you and sinned, even in, in the face of your love and goodness. And I'm grateful for the privilege of proclaiming this gospel every single week from this pulpit and sharing that invitation that others may join the kingdom. Raise up an army of people who are so moved by these facts, that they'll do the same things that Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and these other women did, supporting the ministry of Christ, faithfully contributing, ministering, evangelizing, instructing, fellowshipping. Let us see the far-reaching ramifications of all that the gospel has done and means in our lives that we might live in such a way that every area of our life is affected by this good news. May we reflect on these things even this afternoon and bring us back tonight with joy, ready to hear from your word again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.